0: You're listening to a sermon delivered at First Family Church in Ankeny, Iowa, from the series Doctrine That Goes the Distance. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. A lot of you have heard these kinds of questions before. You've either heard them from people, you've heard them perhaps in different newscasts, maybe you've read them in articles, you may have even asked them before. Questions like Who am I? Why am I here? Those kinds of questions that kind of get to the real root of what a person's all about. Uh, Philosophical in nature. I want you to understand that the doctrine we're considering today, the doctrine of man as God's image bearer, we're in week six of this series called Doctrine That Goes the Distance. This doctrine specifically, and in a very succinct fashion, Answers those questions for all of us. It tells us who we are and why we're here. But here's something I think is most intriguing about the doctrine of man, or what we might call the doctrine of humanity, or what I call biblical anthropology. This is more than anthropology. I couldn't teach that, okay? I don't have a degree in anthropology, but I can teach biblical anthropology. I can help us understand the study of man from God's perspective. And what we're going to find is that it not just answers questions about us and for us. It tells us a wealth of information about God. And let's just go ahead and call it what it is. That's really why we're here. Amen, church? We're not here for you or me. We're here to learn about God and to worship Him and to focus on the glory of God in the face of Christ. So I'm excited today to break out to you um, some information, some understanding, some application about the doctrine of man, but not so that you know yourself better. Only, I'm thrilled that you'll be able to see more about God in this doctrine of humanity. I want to do it in two ways today. I want to have a doctrinal discussion with you for a bit. Uh, you'll want to have a pen handy, some notes. I'll have some slides for you. You can take pictures of those. There'll be things you'll probably think, oh, how does that work? What does that mean? That's good. Then you ask some questions. I'll take maybe two or three questions at some point. So feel free to text those in, the numbers in your worship folder. Um, but after our doctrinal discussion, I want to have kind of a deedal discussion with you because this doctrine, what we know, should affect how we live, what we do. So Bear with me a little bit and let's kind of dive into the doctrinal aspects, then we'll kind of look into the deedal aspects. If you've not heard that word before, we didn't make that one up too. It just refers to kind of how we go about our actions. And what does this doctrine do to us? We'll do that, of course, in three ways. We'll dive into the word. We'll check into class. We'll kind of look at some of the terms and some of the actual labels for what we believe about this doctrine, and then we'll hit the streets. Okay? So let's begin by looking at Genesis chapter one. The first book of the Bible where God's creative activity is recorded for us. And when it comes to the creation of man, here's what the scriptures, inspired by God, here's what they record for us. Verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now you recall, we did look at this verse in our very... First week on the Trinity. We're not analyzing the plural pronouns currently. We're going to look at what God did as a Trinitarian, eternal um, being. It says here, "...He made man in His image after His likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth." So, in other words, after God deliberated within Himself about His activity... He then created man in his own image. So there you see twice, we have the scriptures telling us that we, as humans, are made in God's image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Notice in 27, the Hebrew parallelism, would you? It's an interesting way to use the word, so God created man in his own image. And the next phrase is just the same phrase almost flipped uh, around. In the image of God, he created him. So that's somewhat of a Hebrew poetic um, device for emphasis sake. So we see first of all in the doctrine of humanity or the doctrine of man or in biblical anthropology, here's a fact, here's fundamental um, core tenets of our belief that man is made in the image of God. We Bear his likeness. All right? We were made in the image of God. Now, that's the fact that we see from Scripture. In Latin, we call that the imago Dei, in the image of God. It's kind of a phrase that's used and has been used for centuries to describe a fundamental core tenet of the doctrine of man. We are in his image. The question is, is what does that mean? We know it's used here in Genesis 1. It's also used in Genesis 5, by the way, to describe how Seth was in the likeness of Adam. It's reaffirmed in Genesis 9, verse 6, when it says that um, if you shed man's blood, who was made in the image of God, then your blood will be shed. Now notice here, in Genesis 9:6 is after the fall. Genesis 1:26 is before the fall. So I think we can assuredly say, can you say think and assuredly together? I just did. I know we can assuredly say, let's say it like that. I know we can assuredly say that the image of God that we bear, though distorted after the fall, has not been lost because God affirmed in Genesis 9 after the fall that if you take the blood of someone who's in the image of God. So there's this sense in which the image of God within humans is not something that was lost at the fall, maybe distorted, maybe marred but not lost. First Corinthians 11, Paul affirms the image of God in humans. I think it's verse 6 or 7. James 3, 9, the very same thing. James echoes Paul. So there is a core fact about this doctrine that humans, male and female, were created in God's image. What does that mean? Perhaps it would be good to check into class here to learn a word and, and kind of explain what the word means. It, it, it means, when I say in God's image, it means that in, there's some set of qualities. They can be spiritual, physical, the word here is psychological. But there's some set of qualities that reside in humans, whether or not they recognize God's existence and His work. This is what the image of God refers to. And beyond that, we don't know a lot about what the image of God means. And I just need to be be completely transparent with you. We know it means there's some kind of moral capacity, moral reasoning, creativity, intellect. And there is some kind of physical aspect going, but God does not have a body. He's a spirit. So we're not sure how all that works and what that means. We also know that Jesus Christ, he is the exact representation of God, the exact image of God. And so there's a lot here we don't know about the image of God. It's only mentioned about maybe, what, three or five times in the Old Testament. So we don't have a wealth of information. We have this simple fact. We are in the image of God. What does that mean? It must mean that there is some set of qualities, spiritual, physical, psychological, emotional, that God gives to humans for the purpose of representing who he is. Does that make sense? It's not perfect like it was in the garden. And like it will be in glorification, the fall has distorted, marred that a bit. But it has not taken it away. This is called the substantive view of the image of God. It is the orthodox, long believed, what we would hold to historical understanding of the image of God. There are uh, some other views that would, I would say, rival this. I don't know if they're heretical. They just have different angles. I wouldn't hold to them. I would say there's aspects of them that that they make good points, but there's the functional view, which sees the image of God as rooted in man's dominion over all creation. The other is the relational view, which says that the image of God is really represented in the fact that he created man and woman, and so this relationship factors uh, tells us more how God relates. So there's aspects of that that I can see, but I think the substantive view really gives the widest understanding of what the image of God means. And here's why. Notice with me a couple of things about the context of Genesis 1. Because this verse alone that says twice, God made man and woman in his image, is after a number of things. First of all, man is the last act of God's creation, isn't it? Man is the only part of God's creation in which he says it is very good. Um, um, man is the only part of God's creation in which there is deliberation. God never consults within himself about any other creation act until it comes to man. Then he discusses that within the Trinity, this perfect uh, one being in three persons. He says, Let us make man in our image. And so we did. And it tells me this that man is, is God's pinnacle earthly creation. You are his highest earthly creation. For this purpose, to represent what he's like on the earth. So I would say there's a word you want to remember when it comes to the image of God. And this core tenet, this core fact would be this. Whatever the image of God entails fully that we're not sure we know, it does at least entail this. Representation. You are a representative of God. I believe the words image and the word likeness are are very similar, they're different Hebrew words, but they they have the same general meaning. And they just go to the fact that we represent what God is like. By some set of qualities, spiritual, physical, psychological, emotional, something along those lines that He's given to every human. That's kind of what's going on here in the idea of the image of God. Now, here's what this does not mean. It does not mean that God was once a man. It's not that God was once and first a man. And that may be a better way to say that. God wasn't first a man and then became God. And so he said, Oh, I'll make other people who can one day be gods like me. That's Mormonism. That's not what we're saying here. So don't think, well, okay, if I'm supposed to represent God, then I guess one day I can be God. No, 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 no. So so we're made in God's image, but God wasn't first a man. Became a God and then made us. God is eternal. He was before all things. By him all things consist. God just is. In fact, it's almost impossible to give God a past tense. Because with God as omnipresent, everything is in front of God. He's transcendent. He's beyond time. He's independent. He's self-sufficient. So though we say he you know, who was and is and is to come, in, in, in most theological accurate terms, God just always is so understand that when we talk about being made in the image of God we're not saying that God was once like us that he was first a man not at all he simply made man in his image or his likeness in order to represent him on the earth it also does not mean this it does not mean that we will be God or that we will be a God Will we be like God? The answer is what? Yes. John tells us this. When we see Christ, we'll be like Him. But being like Him is not the same as being Him. (laughs) Now, this brings to mind some other things about the image of God that I want to explain to you. If one day we will be like Him, in other words, if the image that, that we bear currently will be fully restored in glorification... That means at some point, it must have been marred or distorted. It was at the fall. Prior to that, I think there was a perfect representation happening in the garden with Adam and Eve. So you have the image of God in perfect form in the garden. Sin enters. Man sins. And now the image of God, though still within him, is distorted this explains why Paul would say that we are moving from one level of glory to another one level of degree to another as Christ makes us more into the image of his son Romans eight twenty nine, as well as other parts of Romans where it speaks of how God is progressively and increasingly sanctifying us making us into the image of Christ so we're going to go from from the fall to glorification we will see the image restored fully at the point of glorification. Either when Christ returns or when you die and you see him in glory. So the good news of that is this, that you're not going to have to suffer under a distorted image existence forever. There'll be a day in which you will perfectly represent God again in the image that he gave you initially before the fall. What does this show us about God? Listen very carefully to this because that that tells us a lot about us for sure, who we are at our core. We're made in God's image and we represent him. And though it's distorted, like a broken mirror, we don't reflect it perfectly. We know that one day God's going to restore that. Those are things about us that we appreciate. But here's what it tells us about God that I think is even more joyful. That God loves us and he has staked a lot In his pinnacle creation. I mean, now think with me deeply for a moment, church. God didn't need to create mankind. God is not in need of relationship. He was perfectly self sufficient within himself. So God didn't need to make us. And watch this He didn't need to make the world. God wasn't bored. He wasn't looking for a hobby. He wasn't restless. So for some reason, the perfect, eternal, sufficient, transcendent God chose to make the world. And then as the the pinnacle of His earthly creation, He made a man and a woman. And He put them in this world to enjoy it. And to what? Have dominion over it. He is a good God that he would make such a lavish, beautiful place as this world and then say, hey, hey, men and women, I going to hand this over to you to have dominion over it. Enjoy it. Be fruitful. Multiply. Work it. What a good God. I mean, can we just be frank? Has this not been a beautiful few weeks of weather? I know it's hot. But I just think about all the days I'll be shoveling snow and I enjoy the weather right now, okay? <laughs> but yesterday we were outside most of the day I'm not much of a gardener or a landscaper. I like to be outside. But I was just thinking yesterday, man, isn't God just so loving to give us such things like grass and shrubs and a lake or a pool you can put uh, put water in, a patio to sit on and enjoy time with your grandkids and kids and look out and and just feel the wind and watch the trees or go on a walk with your wife and you see, how old's that tree? It looks like may maybe 100 years old. That's a brand new one and... And just kind of walking through this creation, you go to your garden, you pick tomatoes and, or cucumbers or maybe you go to the, to the mountains and you hike and you see cliffs. And, or maybe you're in a big city and you see the incredible, ingenious work of man to create skyscrapers that are 50 and 100 stories high and beautiful cities. And so, you know, from coast to coast, border to border, just in our own small nation, I am in awe that God would give man dominion over that to enjoy that. I mean, I thoroughly enjoy just being in God's creation, don't you? Isn't it God good that he would do that when he didn't need to? Now, I can't explain how that works. I'm not God. I don't understand how you would do something that you don't need. I mean, it's like we typically act out of necessity and we function that way, but God has no needs. He's never been lonely. He's he's not craving anything. And yet in his incredible, loving essence, he made this world and all that's in it, put man as the pinnacle earth of creation and said, have dominion over it. And he said, now enjoy that. So go work. Work hard. Enjoy the labor of your hands. Enjoy my creation. I mean, God is a good God, isn't he? I think this is part and parcel to being made in God's image. Knowing that he loves us this much, that he would put within us some set of qualities that represent him and then in this whole world he made say, go and have a great time in it and represent me every single day as you're enjoying what I've made. So this brings me to the why question then why did God do all of this for us? If he didn't have to, if he didn't need to, why? Look at the last book of the Bible for a few moments. We've seen in the first book a record of God's creation of mankind and the ultimate pinnacle place we serve in the earthly area. Let's go above a about another 30,000 feet and see what God's really up to with all that. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Again, we're still looking at doctrinal aspects of the doctrine of humanity. Here's what God's Word said to us here. Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power for. You created all things. So in Revelation chapter 4, we have a reference back to Genesis 1. Not just the creation of mankind, the last and final, and I say the pinnacle work of God's creation, but here he says, you created all things, and watch this next phrase, by your will, or easily translated for your pleasure, or for your will. In other words, for your purposes, in accordance with your design. They exist and were created. So God made the world. He created man and woman in His image to enjoy that world, have dominion over it. But why? Because, see, he, he desires that His glory be known. So, as representatives of God on the earth, bearing the image of God, yes, currently kind of broken, distorted, but not forever. This is God's plan that those things he's created, especially men and women, we bring glory to him. So the image of God is in us for the glory of God. Here's another verse, Romans 11. Look at this verse. It's a little more succinct, but I want you to notice one preposition in there. For from him and through him and, say it with me, to him. Or how many things? All things. So your life was created to bring glory to God. So the verse says, For from Him there's the source of creation, and through Him, again, the creative source being God the Father and God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and to Him, that's the indestination of all things. To Him now be glory forever. So when you combine Romans um, 11, Revelation 4, you can also go to Isaiah 43:7, 7 where it says that he created Israel for his glory. There's other verses too about this. We begin to see that we bear the image of God for the glory of God. This is the purpose for which we were created. So let's make another doctrinal statement here. Man is not just made in the image of God. Man is made for the purposes of God. And what is the purpose of God? That he would receive glory unto himself. So this is why you're made in the image of God. In fact, if the word representation describes the first doctrinal aspect, you know, we're made in God's image, which means we kind of represent God. To whatever degree that that kind of is laid out in Scripture, we represent what he's like for His likeness, for His image. If representation uh, talks about that first point, I think here reflection would be a good kind of word to kind of use as a handle. We are made for the purposes of God. And what is that purpose? That we reflect God. That we uh, shine and reflect His glory. The phrase Imago Dei describes the phrase image of God. It's been known for centuries. In, in Latin, the phrase for the glory of God is called solo de gloria. It means for the glory of God alone. It's one of the five solas. We hold up the five solas and we would say this, that this is why we exist individually and corporately. We would agree with Revelation 100%. By him are all things and for him all things were created. So to him be glory forever. So I would say that God does not receive glory just because he created all things. God receives glory from all things. You know, there's a difference there. If you make all things, that fact alone would mean you're worthy of glory, correct? Like, wow, you're the creator. You made all this? Yeah. Okay, we're going to give you glory. But he's not just saying give me glory because I made it. God is saying everything I made will actually be the source of the glory that I receive. So he's not just making a creation, you as the pinnacle of that on the earth, and then saying, look how great I am. Everybody give me applause. And then let you kind of run around and do what you want to do. He's not winding the clock and then getting glory for being the clock winder and then sitting back in a rocking chair and watching it unwind. God is actually creating all things And that alone was great to give him glory. But then he says, everything I created, I'll actually get glory from them and through them. It's amazing. God uses everything he made. And so he gives us his image to get glory to himself. This is really the purpose of God in in marking us with his image. I would say we're his pinnacle earthly creation. We're his pinnacle reflective creation. Matthew 5.16 let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and do what to your Father who's in heaven? Glorify your Father who's in heaven. So people look at you and they watch how you live and how you act and how you work. how you Watch this. How you enjoy all the good things that God has made. They're watching you just really enjoy having dominion over the earth. They're watching that. They're like, man. And well, they should be able to say, wow, I want to give glory to the God who made you in his image. This should be the end result of people watching your life. So this is why 1 Corinthians 10.31, I think, weighs upon us heavily. Could you read this verse with me? It's a short verse, but it really describes why we were made in God's image. Together, church. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, what does it mean to do all to the glory of God? What does it mean that we're made to glorify God? A couple of last points under this doctrinal section, and I'll kind of give you a take home truth, and then we'll take some questions, okay? But a couple of points I need you to hear. Glorifying God is an understanding before it's an undertaking. Glorifying God is an understanding. Before it's an undertaking. Here's what we typically do. And I'm going to kind of, I need you to bear with me here. I'm going to kind of poke at you a little bit. I'm going to prod you. We tend to think, like the verse rightly says, eating, drinking, or whatever we do, so it must be an action. And it is, but it's far deeper than that. We tend to think, I should say, we tend to limit glorifying God to just what we do. Like undertakings. But I think none of the undertakings that glorify God, such as eating or drinking or whatever we're doing, happen until there's understanding that really glorifying God brings God great delight. Like, He delights in us. He made us out of great love. He's given us so much to enjoy. Like, wow, God. And so we relate to Him in a relationship. Not just an activity. We're not just doing something so he can get off our backs. We're not saying, well, I've I've done these things that glorify you. Hope I'm safe today. God actually delights in you. And he is most glorified, as John Piper says, when you are delighting in him. See, there's a relationship factor that is primary. There's an activity factor that's secondary. And too many times what we do is we... Attach glorifying God to activities only. But you know that when you find your joy and happiness and contentment in God, he is glorified. Because you're saying to those who are watching what what the psalmist in Psalm 73 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? So what your address is, what you drive, where you work, Whether you're in a hospital bed or a king size bed, how your health is, aren't all that's concerning God. But how you react to those, that concerns Him. And in the middle of whether it's good news or bad news, when we say, God is the strength of my life, He's my portion forever. When his presence is far more valuable than his presence with the T, then God gets great glory from that because he sees in us this incredible, utter, solitary dependence upon him that glorifies him. So, are there things then from that that we do that glorify him? Yes, there are things we do that glorify him, but none of those things that we do, I think, really showcase God's glory if there's not first and foremost an understanding that man just relating to God and being content in his presence that's where everything begins being satisfied in God is one of the very first things we have to do to bring glory to God so understand glorifying God is an understanding understand is understanding can we say that understand that it's an understanding not just undertaking please don't do this don't approach your life tomorrow or this afternoon like okay I've got to glorify God that was the point of today's message that's what we do as his image bearers okay grab my list and you kind of go out with a sour face and a drudgery mindset you're going to attack every one of your to-do lists with glorifying God in mind you're going to you know everyone's watching like man what's with you Dave like I'm glorifying God leave me alone you know. And he's missing an entire understanding that that a loving God has given him all this to enjoy. He's placed him in this middle of this world to have dominion and just to because he loves him. So so there's an attitude that has to be adjusted. Being satisfied in God is the very beginning point of really learning to live a life that glorifies God. Here's the second small bullet point to this, and that's this, that glorifying God is both a promise and a pursuit. Can I say to you that God will get glory from your life? You need to hear that. There are people in this room who are away from the Lord, you're living in rebellion, you're disobedient, you're owning your life, and you're assuming that, that God's just kind of sitting back, hoping and, and wishing that that you'll give in, and like almost like God's on his knees, just begging you. But you're in his face, aren't you? You're that strong-willed adult. No, uh, you're not greater than God. And you may persist in your sin and rebellion, but I can assure you, God will get glory from your life. So it's a promise. Glorifying God is a promise. Everything created will, according to Philippians 2, at some point acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. But it's also a pursuit. It's something that God graciously has allowed us to participate in. We, We do things. We spend time with him. We read his word. We pray. Um, eat, drink, whatever you do. So, so God's not hoping like, well, I hope I'll, some of my creatures will give me glory, otherwise I'm up a creek here. That's not God. God will get glory, but in his, in his great love and graciousness, he's invited us in to participate in this process of bringing great glory to his name. Again, it goes back to something. In both of these doctrinal points, we see the goodness and graciousness and loving character of our God in making such a beautiful place And such a pinnacle creation as man and woman and allowing us to enjoy it for the purpose of bringing Him glory. What a good God, amen? And so, our take on truth is really quite self-evident. Every man, every woman, in the image of God, for the glory of God, no exceptions. If you were to ask me, Todd, what's your... Concise understanding of the doctrine of humanity. Biblical anthropology. Where are you with the doctrine of man? What do we believe non-negotiably? I'd say it to you like this. In the image of God, for the glory of God, every man, every woman, no exceptions. Now that has some implications we'll talk about in our hit the streets moment. But just understand, this is biblical doctrine. That every man, every woman, is made in the image of God, for the glory of God, no exceptions. Now let's see if there's any questions that have come in. We have one. Let's take that question and then we will um, talk about some implications from this non-negotiable truth that we've discovered from Genesis and Revelation. If mankind was made in God's image from Him, through Him, and to Him, and to glorify Him, then what can we say about the people who spend their lives dehumanizing others or seemingly living as the anti-image of God? What can we say about them? That's a bad decision, first of all. We can say that for sure, right? It's an unwise, bad decision to battle God for your whole life and then to realize that at the end of that earthly battle... God will still use your sin to bring glory to His own name. Now, if you're asking me to explain how He does that, uh, you need a smarter pastor than this guy. Okay, we know that there are places in the Scripture where He's done that. Pharaoh, we're going to read that in a minute, but Pharaoh consistently shook his face in God's Shook his fist in God's face. Via Moses and the children of Israel. I will not let you go. Who does this God think he is? No, you cannot leave. But in the end, did God redeem his people? And in fact, Romans 9, about verse 17 or 18, says that for this purpose I have created you, that you would show my power. So Pharaoh be I thought, my whole life, I'm anti-God. But in the end, God used his very wickedness to showcase his own power. So again, how that happens, I don't know. But I, I stand on Philippians 2. That there will be a day when every knee will bow, every creature in heaven and earth. And they'll confess, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God can use both good and bad to magnify his character. Okay, So great question. Maybe not the best answer. But let's not vary from our doctrine. Let's not think, well... That one exception seems to push a hole here. No. We just haven't seen the end of the story totally yet. All right? Good question. Thanks for asking. Here's a question you may, that's kind of similar, that I I think I ask myself a lot the last two or three weeks. In thinking through these facts and thinking through the doctrinal aspects, and then just, I would say coming up with, but in formulating that simple take-home truth, when I wrote it out and worked with it and, I remember thinking this, okay, every man, every woman in the name of God for glory of God, no exceptions. And then I thought, really? Like like everything? Everyone? And my mind began to think of someone like that question I asked about, or maybe someone with a terrible birth defect. Maybe a mental issue. Maybe a severely debilitated um, situation. And my, and my mind just began to run through like everything? Like, every, every person? And so I asked the Lord, I said, Lord, how do I, how do I answer that question? Because I'm probably not the only guy thinking that. I hope you thought that. One thing pastors have to do is, as we think through the text, ask ourselves, what are they going to be thinking in response to this truth? And so you try to ask yourself, How would I hear this? Not a whole lot different than our church. And that's what I thought. Like, really? Everything? There's no exceptions? And God directed me to Romans chapter 9. And I want to read these verses to you. And then we'll make some hit-the-street applications, okay? But here's what Romans says in direct answer to that question. I want to warn you that you will have more questions after the reading of these verses. and I'm glad about that. The point of this message is not to explain all the questions you'll have as a result of reading these verses, okay? So I'm going to read these and just make sure we understand that it is true. Everyone, everything, for the glory of God. No exceptions. That's the biblical truth. But in answering that question, you are going to home and you'll have some interesting lunchtime discussion, I think. And you should. But let's hear what God would say about our own question. Really, God? Everyone? Everything in your image, for your purpose, for your glory? Really? Here's what he said in Romans 9. I'll begin about verse 17. Again, he's going to give an illustration of some things prior to this, so you'll need to read this on your own, but I'll begin in verse 17. The scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Pharaoh never came to the Lord. He never bowed a knee to Yahweh. And yet God used him for his purposes. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Here's verse 20. Listen very carefully. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his, say it with me, glory for vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Now I know you've got 49 more questions that aren't the point of this message, but can we at least on the question, really God, everything, everyone, in great unity stand on the doctrine that yes, there is not a single person created. There is not a single thing created outside of God's purpose that he made it and will use it for his glory. Why? Because he's the potter we're the clay. He's the creator we're the created and who are we to say to God why did you make it like this? Man, this does this not strike at the heart of American Christianity? We love to argue with God. To assume that our way would have been better. He must have made a mistake in this situation. He obviously didn't know what he was doing. But see the real point of the passage is God has the authority and right to create as he wills for his purpose. Because he must know that in that very act of creating, as he wills, he will gain glory from that. Pharaoh's example used here. So I want to answer assuredly to you that our take-home truth is completely biblical, accurate, and rooted in God's very nature and word. Yes, every man, every woman, in the image of God, for the glory of God, no exceptions. That should bring us great joy. Let me give you a couple of hit the street applications. Here we're going to move to our deedinal section. Okay? Let me just be somewhat brief here. Because if, since this is true, this doctrine should affect us by necessity in at least two ways it should adjust our perspective first of all okay things like abortion racism euthanasia sexism classism all of those are ungodly perspectives on people who bear God's image. If you were here this morning, and I want to be very kind here, and that's always my goal to be kind, but I also want to be very clear. If you're here this morning, and you've often embraced some of these isms, or you've considered abortion more of a woman's right, I would challenge you based on God's word. It's a heinous Wicked act upon a life that was in God's image, and if you if you recall the Holocaust and grimace and pain, we have in exponential ways exceeded the horrors of that in our own country. Now I've written more about this today on purpose. Because I want you to understand more about the doctrine of man and how strongly we feel about saving those who aren't yet visible but are completely viable and are made in God's image, the unborn. I've written about that on my blog. I've written about the Imago Dei, the Latin phrase for the image of God. So go by and check it, toddstyles.net. There's a lot of things there about the image of God that I think will help you that I couldn't give this morning. But it's also just a plea for us to think rightly about the value of life, both at its beginning... And at its end, we should not be surprised that a devaluing of life at the beginning has now become a devaluing of life at the end. Are there hard decisions at the end of life? I'm sure there are. And by no means I'm making light of those difficult waters folks navigate. But we do not hold the power of life and death. That's in God's court. We must remember that principle as we navigate. And all that's rooted in the doctrine of man, that we are made in the image of God. Every man, every woman, no exceptions. So as a church, we believe in the sanctity of life. We believe all lives matter. And so... The doctrine of man adjusts our perspective. It also aligns our priorities. What do you mean, Todd? Because when you understand that God is, is going to get glory from your life and that He is glorified as you are satisfied and as this relationship blossoms and flourishes, that God is so gracious and good to give you such a beautiful world in which to operate and have dominion. Like, wow, what a gracious and loving God! And suddenly we begin to approach every decision with this question in mind. How can God be most clearly seen? I don't know if you've asked that question. But I would submit to you, that's a very good question to ask. Before every decision, how can God be most clearly seen? Now don't think I'm saying that that always means you seek the life of a poverty-stricken monk, (laughs) okay? I'm not saying that. Don't hear what I'm not saying. In fact, Paul says that God's given us all things freely to enjoy, amen? It may be that in your enjoyment of everything God's given you with a gracious and and loving attitude in return to God, that that maybe that showcases God's, God's work in your life. I don't know. I'm just saying to you, you should ask this question. As you align your priorities, because God's glory matters most, you should ask this question. How can God be most clearly seen in this decision? I think it comes down to things like, and you'll have to pardon me here for being personal. Maybe not pardon me. Maybe this is what my job is, to be personal with you, right? It's my role here. Where will you live and spend the years of your life? I don't think everyone here should live in a closed country. I don't think that. Some of you probably think I think that. But I don't live in a closed country. I don't sense any calling of God right now to move to Turkey you know, or, or, or Central Asia. Maybe Turkey's not closed. I don't even know. But there are people that God will call to live in areas for strategic reasons. And if he's not calling you to live in there, he's going to ask you to do that here. My question is, this, where, where, where are you going to live so that God's glory can be most clearly seen? What will you drive? Where will you go? Uh, how will you interact? Where will you shop? Just all these questions. They have implica- they have, their answers have implications in regards to how we reflect God's glory. So I just want to ask you, are you being strategic in your decision so that God's glory is most clearly seen? Because when that becomes our mindset, then we, I think we're getting a full grasp of what it means to be made in the image of God for the glory of God. And of course, we don't do this without the motivation of our Lord and Savior, who was the ultimate fulfillment of the doctrine of man. You know that, right? He, caution says this, he is the express image of God. So if you really want to know what God is like, if you want to see the perfect representation reflection, don't look at man... With a marred or distorted image currently because of the fall, let's look to Jesus who perfectly, watch this, who perfectly saw that people mattered, had the perfect perspective, and did everything for the glory of God, even going to the cross for us. Amen? So Jesus Christ is the perfect, ultimate fulfillment of everything contained in the doctrine of man. No wonder we're told to fix our eyes on Him as we made in God's image, seek to live for his glory as well. Will you pray with me, please?